0: good morning. We're going to be picking up again with Matthew 24. We gave the introduction last week, and we're going to uh, carry on now with the actual prophecy itself. Let's just start with, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, again we come to you realizing that we are living, we believe, in the last days, and we certainly hope that we are living in the last days. And so we pray for understanding, that we might understand the intention of your dear Son, and that we might see what we are to do, to be prepared for him, and that, indeed, when he comes, may each of us be found ready and eager to rise up and leave all things, and to go with him immediately, and please work in our lives to that end. For his sake. Amen. Well, I mentioned last time that the, the prophecy that we've got here, it seems to me, is like all Bible prophecies, it is conditional. And... I suggested last time that the intention of the Lord Jesus was to return in the first century, but that didn't work out. It was rescheduled, and therefore a lot of the things that uh, we read of here could have had a fulfillment in the first century, uh, particularly in the events of AD 70, and there is plenty of evidence that actually it, it did all start to come to pass. But there were a couple of conditions that were not met. And those conditions particularly, whether the gospel should go into all the world, and further that uh, the fig tree should start to blossom. That is, that there should be fruit on the fig tree, there should be repentance in Israel, which there was not. And so what could have happened in that generation was rescheduled. <clears throat> now that is not to say that God is you know, kind of not serious. What I think it shows is that God is highly sensitive to human behavior, particularly to repentance and to the state of, uh, of his people on earth, both natural and spiritual. And it's rather like in our own lives, that God has set up all kinds of potential futures for us. If you had taken that job, if you had married that, that person, life would have gone like this, and then if at that junction you had uh, chosen this way, life would have gone like that, etc., So there are all these various uh, potential possibilities for human response. And God's prophetic program is not all black and white. It is open to change. And, of course, the, the old complaint is, ah, but God doesn't change. Well, the only time I can really find God saying he doesn't change is in Malachi, when he says, you sons of Jacob are not consumed because I change not. That is... His grace and his mercy and his desire to save Israel does not change. But in fact the Bible is full, full of accounts of him changing. Jonah, in forty days Nineveh shall be destroyed, but it wasn't. In my opinion, at the very start of the Bible, if you eat that tree, you shall surely die. They ate of it, and they did not die in that very same day. I don't believe the Hebrew text there talks about any kind of process, simply saying, dying you shall die. In other words, you really shall. But they didn't. Why? Because of God's grace. And so it is here, really, as I see it, that judgment could have come upon Israel for crucifying the Lord Jesus, but God, in perhaps the most spectacular display of his grace and mercy, delayed that, and 2 Peter says that he delayed that because he sought for repentance, and this is what he wants, far more than anything else, not to judge people, but to see their repentance. And so the disciples ask this, uh, this question when Jesus says that the temple's going to be thrown down. The temple was thought in Judaism to be eternal. And they, they say, so when shall these things be? Verse 3, what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I suggest that those three things are all talking about the, the same incident. And in fact, the end of the age... Jesus has used this term himself in Matthew thirteen thirty nine and 40 to describe the final judgment when he returns. And it's, a, <clears throat> it's actually quoting from the Septuagint of Daniel 12, verses 4 and 7, which likewise is clearly talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus in, in the last days. So then he gives a number of, of signs that he says are like the warm-up, but he says, be not troubled. All these things have got to happen, verse six, but the end is not is not yet. And those signs, uh, particularly, seem to be about verse six: wars, rumors of wars, and nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, plagues, earthquakes. The AV says in diverse places. But he says all these are just the beginning of of the birth pains. Now, I. I know it would be tempting to say, oh yes, we're starting to see all that happening, therefore the end must be near. Well, yes, you, you could look at it that way, but of course the problem is that um, there has always been talks of plagues and earthquakes, uh, etc. I, I think the significant thing in, in verse 6 is you shall hear of all these things. And I think one reason why we get the impression that there's more and more wars and uh, earthquakes and plagues going on is because of the media. We are living in a, a world situation that has got no precedent in any time in human history in the sense that we are now hearing. We are now hearing of every bit of trouble that's going on on every single point on the planet. And you get that news on your, on your cell phone, you get it uh, on the media pushed into your face all the time. And that is a situation that has never been so I think there are six, you shall hear of all these things. I think that's significant. Now, in no way could this really have had a fulfilment in the first century, because there was not nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom within the Roman Empire of the early half of the the first half of the first century. <coughs> there was the the Pax Romana. Rome was in control. There was not some situation. Of uh, autonomous nations rising up against each other—that simply wasn't going on in the first century. Yes, there were reports of famines, plagues, and earthquakes in uh, in the first century. Josephus makes that point, but so there ever have been. And I think the Lord is saying, "Yes, yeah, sure, these things will be there, uh, but this is not the sign that I'm about to come. This is the prelude to to, to the whole thing." And he says, all these things must uh, come to pass, Uh, verse 6, that is, they all must be fulfilled, but the end is not yet. Now that is actually quoting, again from the Septuagint of Daniel 2, verse 28, where we have the the idea uh, of the whole prophetic program that's outlined there coming to its end. So it could have happened in the first century. Daniel's prophecies would have had a a different outworking to the one that we are accustomed to. But the prophecies in Daniel are in that sense open-ended. They could have had various fulfillments. And because we are used and accustomed to seeing the fulfillment that we know, uh, and uh, the prophetic outline that we are kind of used to working with, It's easy to think that that's the only one that could have been. It didn't have to be that way. Now, he talks here about uh, how there there would be famines. Well, I've said that the great reason why the Lord didn't come in the first century, it seems to me, was because Israel didn't repent. When you think of famines, you think of Elijah. Elijah. There was a famine for three and a half years in Elijah's time, specifically aimed at bringing Israel to repentance. And that three and a half year period fits very well with other prophetic indications of a three and a half year time of trouble in the end. And of course it was famine that led the prodigal to repent and come back to the father. And that's all very much talking about the... Uh, the repentance of the last days uh, of Israel. But I really think that what the Lord is prophesying here is not a situation that goes on over, uh, over decades leading up to his coming. I think it's talking about a short, sharp situation in the very last days, literally the last days before he comes. He... I suggest that the book of Revelation is an expansion upon the Olivet Prophecy. You see that very clearly, particularly in the seals of Revelation 6. They're all full of allusion to the Olivet Prophecy. Now, later on in Revelation, you read that uh, Babylon's famine, Revelation 18 verse 8, comes in one day. Famine doesn't normally come in one day, certainly not uh, traditionally. Famine is over a period of time. But the famine comes in one day. Now, that is understandable in a place like Israel that's relying a lot on imported food. If suddenly all the land borders are closed, suddenly uh, there's some form maybe of chemical warfare, something like that, which means that a famine can happen in one day. And again, although I've said I'm not here to to give a whole set of uh, world conditions that are directly fulfilling the Lord's words here, because I think it all is to come true in the last days specifically, I think there's a number of hints here of a situation which could only be fulfilled in our time. Now, a famine coming in one day, that can only be, as I see it, uh, in the modern world in which we live. Famines could not, by definition, have come in one day in, in the first century. It was a process earthquakes. A theme I want to develop going through the Olivet Prophecy is that it's full of allusion to the sufferings of Jesus and to the crucifixion. Of course there was an earthquake at the crucifixion. And I think the point of that is to show us that the intention of these final sufferings that that, that are outlined here are in order to lead Israel and in order to lead us to identify with the crucified Jesus. And to come to, to really be one with him. So that as Paul says if we suffer with him. We shall also rise with him. We shall also reign with him. Now earthquakes in the AV says diverse or various places. Well that word diverse is not there in the original. And all these attempts to, to show that earthquakes now are going on. Where they never used to go on. That fulfills what Jesus said, earthquakes in various places. Well, unfortunately, the word various is simply not there. It's an attempt by the translators to make sense of a difficult passage in the Greek. Earthquakes will occur in places, that's what it says, which sounds kind of obvious, until you recognize that the New Testament words written in Greek is clearly based upon Hebrew thought. And there is in Hebrew, as in a number of languages, the intensive plural. Whereby you speak of uh, something in the plural to mean the one great thing. The blood's plural of Messiah. There's not more than one blood, if you see what I'm saying. It means the great blood of, of, of Messiah, the significant one. And so here... Earthquakes in places, in the great place. And where is the one great place? Well, they were sitting there on the Temple Mount in, surely, the holy place. And in fact, that word places is used in verse 15 here about the holy place. Now, this would connect directly with Zechariah chapter 14, that when Christ returns, there will be an earthquake that splits the Mount of Olives. So I think that that is talking about something that's going to happen, one great earthquake or earthquakes in, uh, the, in the holy place. But this, he says, is the beginning of birth pains, And this again is used about the Lord's sufferings. Same word in Acts 2 verse 24. That his sufferings were birth pangs that came to term in his resurrection from the dead. So again, all this is helping us, or is intended to help people, to come to identify with the crucified Christ, and particularly, I would suggest, Jewish people living in the land of Israel in the last days. Now all of Matthew 24 and 25 is full of uh, language that is picked up in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, which is a running commentary, really, on what we're reading here. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail, it's the same word, birth pangs, sorrows, as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. Now that implies that all these things that we're reading here actually come very suddenly. They're actually saying peace and safety. And then all these things happen. So I don't think that all these Things you're reading—earthquakes, kingdom against kingdom, famines, and so forth—are talking about a situation that goes on for decades. That's not the uh, the decorum of the symbol, as John Thomas used to write. The idea is that there will be peace and safety, and then the sudden uh, pangs come upon upon them, as upon a woman in, in labour. Verse nine. Then they shall deliver you up. And that is just the same word used for the betrayal of Jesus. It's very often used. 17 verse 22 in Matthew. The Son of Man shall be betrayed, delivered up to the Jews. And then same word in chapter 27 several times. They delivered him to Pontius Pilate. And that's exactly what what you've got here. That the, uh, the believers are to be delivered up. Um, to both the synagogues and to the Gentiles, both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. That's exactly what happened with Jesus. Again, the purpose of all these sufferings in the final last days in Israel, which is what I think it's talking about the Jewish people in Israel, is to lead them to identity with the crucified Jesus. And we just stop there for a minute. Because actually that's what's going on in your life and mine. But there is an ongoing program by God operating in our lives that we might know him crucified, so that we might rise again with him. And you wonder, why on earth did that happen? Why did she betray me? Why did he hit me in the face when I did nothing wrong? Why did this happen? Why have I got this huge pain in my bones? Why have I got this? Why that? In, in one simple answer, it is that we might know Christ. So that if we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. So then, you will be delivered up, he says, to be afflicted. It's the same word in 21 and 29, tribulation. There will be a tribulation. And I said in the last talk that the upper room discourse in John 14 to 16 is John's equivalent structurally and in terms of meaning to the uh, to the Sermon on the Mount. And there's so many points of connection that we talked about last week. And the point of connection here is, in John 16, a woman, when she is in labor, has anguish, has affliction. In the world you shall have tribulation. Same word. This is going to happen, uh, John 16 is saying, in any case, in the life of every believer, whether or not you are uh, an Israeli living in Israel in the last few days before Christ comes, or in your own life, this is going to happen, so that you might identify with him. And this idea of the Jews having to suffer the afflictions of Christ so that they might know him, so that they might identify with him, this is very beautifully brought out in the story of Joseph. Now, in Acts 7, I think Stephen, in appealing to the Jews, is making this point. He says that Joseph was afflicted, Acts 7 verse 10. And he uses the same word in the next verse um, to uh, talk about how there was great affliction for the brothers because of the famine. So Joseph was afflicted and famines were brought into the land of Canaan, Israel, so that the Jews, if you like, Israel... Israel's children, could understand the affliction of Joseph. And all that was so prophetic of the last days. So there is meaning, coming back to us, there is meaning in human suffering. There's meaning in in everything that we go through. So that we might identify with the crucified Jesus, and if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. So this is not just the wrath of a very powerful deity who's taken it out on people. Now, they shall kill you. And again, this is used many times. This Greek word, "apoktino" is used so many times in the Gospels about the killing of Jesus. It's again to forge identity between us and the crucified Jesus, and particularly Israel and the crucified Jesus. You shall be beaten in the synagogues, Mark 13 verse 9 adds at this point. Just a diverging one little bit from our track. You shall be beaten in the synagogues. The synagogue could only discipline by beating its sort of communicant members. So Jesus intended his disciples to remain within the synagogue system. And he says in John 16 2, The time should come when you will be cast out. You will be excommunicated from the synagogues. He intended his people to stay there until they were checked out. Now that, to me, puts an end to all talk about guilt by association. You must leave this religious organisation or that group or that fellowship or whatever because they don't believe the right things. The synagogues of the first century did not believe the right things. They were actually anti-Jesus. They had all sorts of wrong ideas, immortal soul, hellfire, Satan, you know, fell off the 99th floor, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And they were way off in their understanding of Messiah. But the Lord doesn't say, so get out of there. He says, stay there until they chuck you out. So there was no guilt by association there at all. Well, he says, and you shall be hated of all nations. And yet we're going to go on to read, especially in Mark's record, 13 verse 10, that the gospel shall go to all nations. So the hating by all nations and the gospel going to all nations, I suggest, are parallel. So then it is during this persecution that the gospel is spread. And it would appear that it's spread so publicly because we are arraigned ...publicly uh, in in front of courts and and judges and so forth. And through that media attention, the gospel goes for the witness to all nations. And again, how could that happen? Well, again, only the media explosion of the last ten years has made that possible. I say the last ten years because it's only in that time that ordinary working class people in the developing world, all over the world have had easy access, have developed easy access to the internet and to the media so that now everyone all over the world sees what's going on. (coughs) Many shall be offended, verse 10. The majority. That's what the Greek word means. Now, offended means to stumble. So these people were once in the way but they stumble out of it. So you're looking at a mass collapse of faith In the very last days. The majority are going to lose it. Right at the very end. And then he goes on to say that. um, Many shall betray one another. That's exactly the language of Judas. Who was of course one of the twelve. And they shall hate one another. And yet he said in verse 9. You shall be hated of all nations. So it's as if the majority of the believers will start to act to the other believers as the nations do. So then they will be taken in by this world system, it seems, that is going to arise, who will persecute the believers. And I think that's why there's this warning against false teaching so strongly false prophets, when people are going to arise and say, look, if you just give some sort of pinch of incense to Caesar, if you make some nominal agreement with these powers that be, and yes, persecute our brethren, everything shall be fine. And that's what God wants of you. Iniquity shall abound. Verse 12, this is (laughs) again, the Septuagint of uh, Daniel 12, verse 10, the wicked shall do wickedly. And therefore the love of the majority shall become cold. And this is this word agape. That there will not be love, real love, amongst God's people in the very last few days. But he that endures to the end, 13, shall be saved. Imagine how hard it's going to be if the majority of those you've known in in the faith turn away. And if there is this betrayal, And yet it is that minority that hold on who shall take the gospel to all the world at that very last time. Why is it going to be so tough for that last generation? Well, because they are the only generation who shall not see death. They're the only generation who shall never die. Because we are alive when Jesus comes, we come the day of judgment, then we live forever so it 's not surprising it 's going to be very, very tough. and endure to the end this again is the language of the suffering of jesus it 's the same word used in hebrews twelve two and three about how Jesus endured to the end. and again, the end is used here in matthew twenty six verse fifty eight about his death. They came to the end. And the end is used, as I said, about his death. So again, in that period, we will identify with the crucified Christ. And then, 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world. Now, it's possible to read this, not so much as a prediction, it shall be preached in all the world, but as a command, it shall be preached. Now, go on and do this. And as I said at the start, I think that that is one of the preconditions that was not fulfilled in the first century, which led to this delay in the Lord's coming. It's going to be preached in all the world. Well, those who like to think this all happened in AD 70 will quote uh, Colossians 1, uh, where apparently there is the idea that the gospel went into all the world. But clearly the word used here means the entire inhabited world. And those words used in Colossians 1 are different. It went into the cosmos, which is normally used about the Jewish age, the Jewish world, the Jewish setup. This word that's used here, by really has a more universal, global sort of sense. And um, Mark 13, verse 10, says the gospel must be published amongst all nations, amongst all ethnos. Well, that didn't happen in the first century. It's as simple as that. There's no question about that. So when you then uh, come on to what Revelation has to say about this, in its commentary upon the, uh, the Olivet Prophecy, you see it talking about how there will be in the last days... People from every language group, every ethnic group, every nation, every tribe of the planet saved in the last days. Now, that that, that cannot in any sense be restricted to the first century, the, uh, or the spreading the gospel in the first century. That's simply not the case. And again, how could that possibly have happened without the internet? And... Not only that, but the phenomena of migration. That you can stand on the streets of of London or even here in Riga uh, or anywhere, any big city, and hand out tracks on your street corner and the flow of people taking them. These people are from all over the world. You haven't even got to go to to, to these countries. The gospel is spreading to every single nation. Now, I would uh, simply raise the point there that if, according to Revelation, there shall be people from every nation, and the elect are gathered, we're going to read in Matthew 24, from the four winds, from all over the earth, then I just wonder whether it could possibly be correct, the way that I grew up in the church of my youth thinking that the people that God dealt with on this planet were a group of of a few hundred people in South East England. No, God's level of acceptance is clearly going to be much greater than that. It has to be for these prophecies to be fulfilled. It will be preached for a witness and yet in Luke 24, when Jesus sends the disciples out to, to preach, he says, you will be witnesses. You are witnesses. So then, their witness, our witness, will be in who we are. And this Greek word, marturion, is translated it, witness. It's very much got a legal sense. a uh, Sort of a witness uh, in, in a prosecution case. So, I think the witness is made under legal persecution uh, under cases of coming before magistrates, etc., which is exactly what we've read here. That the gospel uh, goes into all nations, but you shall be hated of all nations, and you shall be persecuted of all nations. So then, this, uh, I think, has yet to happen, and yet can you not see that with the spread of the gospel throughout the, the planet, this is more than beginning to come together as a picture very, very easily. This whole situation would start today, whereby there's serious persecution, most people fall away, but the minority who, who endure make a public witness, and people believe from all over the world, thanks to the media. And they, in their turn, make their witness. Now, then verse 15, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, Stand in the holy place, where it ought not, Mark adds. Luke puts it slightly differently. He says, when you therefore shall see Jerusalem compassed by armies. So then, the uh, desolation of Jerusalem uh, is going to be caused by these armies that are around it. Now, typically, the explanation is given that, oh, yeah, this happened in AD 70 when the Roman legions with their pagan, uh, like, totem poles uh, came into the temple, etc. But that, for one thing, there's a problem with that idea, because it says that when you see this abomination of desolation, then flee to the mountains. Well, right? When you think about it, that doesn't fit this suggested fulfilment in AD 70. The Jews defended the temple right to the very end. And in fact, uh, the, the Roman soldiers were told not to actually defile the temple. But in the end, they had no option but to actually burn the whole thing with fire. That's how the temple was finally taken. So th- there is not actually this idea of Roman soldiers walking around the temple doing blasphemous deeds in the temple with their totem poles, that this is not historically what happened. That's mythical thinking. Trying to force a fulfillment of these words in AD 70. And also, this happened right at the end of the Jewish war. Whereas here the Lord says, when you see this, then, then go. Now the opportunity to flee Jerusalem, which was given by Titus, was actually well before the burning of the temple, which is really right at the end of it. So I suggest that this must have a fulfillment in the very last days. Let him understand, Jesus says. Whoever reads, let him understand. And this is, I think, uh, picking up what what God says to Daniel in Daniel 12, when he wants to understand, and basically he's told, you will not understand but in the last days they shall understand. Jesus said that he he was predicting his own death and sufferings so that when it happens, then you will know. In other words, the purpose of prophecy is not so that you can predict decades in advance a sequence of events. The purpose of prophecy is so that when it happens, then you know, Uh aha, This is what was said. So There's not prediction in that sense. Now, there would appear to be, according to Daniel 12, an outpouring of understanding in the last days. And so when you see these things, then you will understand. Now that's somewhat different, somewhat different to the idea that uh, oh, we, we can predict all this ahead of time. He says that when you see this, flee into the mountains, toward the mountains. And of course, this is very much the picture of Lot in Sodom. Get out of here, go to the mountains. And that, as we know, the days of Lot are a type of the last days. Now... I suggest then that this is actually a call in the last days to go to Jesus and toward the mountains, the one great mountain, you remember what I said about intensive plurals? And where were they sitting? On the Mount of Olives. So it's as if the Lord is saying that you know, when finally you see this, flee to the mountain to the mount, the mount. And we know that he is going to come back to the Mount of Olives. Acts one verse twelve, he ascends from there, and the angels say, As you saw him ascend, so he will return. In Zechariah fourteen, Yahweh's feet shall stand in the last days upon the Mount of Olives that's at his second coming, and it shall split. (coughs) The implication is that you must flee instantly. Verse 17, if you're on the housetop, just jump onto the next housetop, onto the next one, onto the next one. Don't even go down to take your jacket. Don't take anything out of your house. Uh, Don't return from the field to take your jacket. Just go immediately. That implies that this abomination of desolation is going to happen very quickly. And the call to flee, and I'm suggesting this is the call to actually go to be with Jesus... ...has got to be responded to immediately... ...and that's a great theme... ...you get it earlier in in the Gospels... ...in Luke 12... ...that blessed is that man... ...who will immediately open... ...it is the immediacy of our response... ...to the news that he's back... ...which is actually our judgment... ...so whatever this abomination of desolation is... ...it's something that's going to happen immediately... uh, in ...in a moment... ...and it will be the signal to believers in Jerusalem and in Israel to flee to the Mount of Olives. I think in terms of Zechariah 14, the city of Jerusalem is going to be captured um, and it's going to fall and there's going to be the women raped etc. Leaving, many people two thirds of the population going to be killed, leaving a minority and I believe that it's that minority which will repent. So I think the whole passage here in Matthew 24 is specifically talking about the situation in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the last days, literally the last few days, before the Lord Jesus uh, comes back. He says in 20, Pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath. Whatever that means, if you look in my notes, I've got some suggestions there. I just want to say briefly that what that, at least means, is that God's prophetic program is open to change according to our prayers. If you pray, then this schedule will happen. If you don't pray, then it might happen in the winter, or on the Sabbath, or in the Sabbath year, as I think he means. Um, God is so sensitive to our prayers, and he has various... Programs and timetables in place that depend upon our prayers. Well, then there will be this time of Jacob's trouble, that's clearly what's being alluded to, such as never was since the beginning of the world, nor ever shall be. It's clearly Daniel 12, verse 1, a time of trouble for Israel, such as never was since the nation of Israel ever was, since the beginning of the Jewish age. Nor ever will be. So it's not talking about AD 70, it's something far worse than the Holocaust, this is clearly talking about the last days. And except those days should be shortened, verse 22, no one should be saved. The days, he says, had been shortened. It's as if he's saying they have been shortened. And yet he also seems to say the days will be shortened. Now, I wonder if... What the Lord is getting at is that He has already interceded in order to reduce the number of days. And when you talk about the days, one wonders if this is Daniel. You know, you've got 1335, 1290, 12, 1260 12, at the end of Daniel 12, and then in Daniel 8 you've got this 2,300 3, uh, days. One wonders if, if all those various prophetic periods are different possibilities. And the days will be shortened. Because God sees that if they go on any longer, then people would not be saved. But for the elect's sake, they shall be shortened. Well, the elect could be the Lord Jesus. He's also called the uh, electos, the elect of God in of Peter 2. It could be that the elect are the believers, that because of our prayers... It will all be shortened. Now, again, I think the type of Joseph helps us to understand here. Genesis 45 verse 1 says that Joseph could not refrain himself any longer. And he says to his brothers, look, I'm Joseph. And I I love you. And just reading that whole passage there, that whole story there of Joseph and his brothers it would seem to me that he had in mind another possible program of events. But he could not refrain himself. His love for them was so great. The whole dragging out of the thing was to elicit from them repentance. Not because he liked to make them suffer, but because he wanted them to repent. But he couldn't refrain himself. And so the the days were shortened. And I think that this looks forward to these very last days. And then, um, verse 23, if people start saying, here's Christ, there's Christ, don't believe him. I don't really think that the the false Christs, who are nearly all mentally disturbed people, have got the Christ complex, who say, ah, oh, yeah, like I'm Jesus, um, I, I don't think they're, they've ever really been a serious threat to the believers. They have no credibility. And yet Jesus speaks here as if these kind of things will have very real uh, danger of deceiving people in the last days. But if we're talking about the literal last few days, then that makes sense. Because there's this sign, whatever it has been, this abomination that makes desolate, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. It could be a physical uh, appearance of something in the sky. And everybody knows he's about to come back then, sure, then there will be an environment in which it will be very easy for all sorts of guys to stand up and say, oh yeah, I'm him, I've come, here I am. And that, again, leads me to think that we are reading here about predictions about literally the very last few days, not decades, before the Lord comes. Now when all this happens, then we'll see, then we will know, then we will understand. That these, what these prophecies are really getting at. They will deceive, if it were possible, the very elect. Now the elect are going to be gathered from the four winds. And so I think this must talk about the, the believers. And yet, if you are chosen in that sense, you are somehow preserved from failure. Jude, he is able to keep you from falling. This is his intention, this is his plan to keep you from failure. And this is part of God's sealing of his people. Now, 28, where the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. I suggest that the carcass is Israel. He's introduced the Olivet prophecy by saying, Your house is left unto you desolate. It's empty. It's a similar metaphor. And he's saying that the eagles are going to come to that carcass in judgment. Now, I suggest then that what actually is going to happen is that Jesus will uh, come with the believers who have been snatched away into the air to meet him, and he will come in judgment with them. The Greek word for eagle, aietos, literally means one of the air, an aerial thing. And yet Jesus is going to uh, come in the air, of Thessalonians 4.17, with us. We are snatched away, I think the chronology, if you like, will be that we know he's back, the call comes to meet him, we show that yes, I drop everything immediately in a flash to go with him, We're confirmed in that by being whisked away in the air, snatched away. We meet Jesus in the air and come with Jesus to Jerusalem in judgment. And this would explain the very similar use of language here about the carcass and the eagles in Luke 17.37. Where the Lord is answering the question of how are we going to get to the day of judgment. And he says that where the carcass is there the eagles will be gathered that you will be gathered. Don't worry. You, you'll be taken there. You'll be snatched away to get there. In the same way that uh, God will uh, gather the dead believers to him, to Jesus. First Thessalonians 4 verse 14. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Our gathering together unto him. So then the eagles will be gathered. The eagles are us. And yet the eagles are also Jesus coming in judgment upon Jerusalem. And yet we will come with him to judgment, in judgment upon these people. The sun shall be darkened. So there's a lot of uh, attention to the, the literal state of the sky. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus died. Luke 23:45, 45, same Greek words. Again and again, the intention is... To get people to recognize and to identify with the crucifixion sufferings of Jesus. The sign of the Son of Man in heaven, verse 30. This, I suggest, is a literal sign. And Matthew, of course, begins his Gospel with such a sign being followed by the wise men. And he almost concludes it, as it were, with something similar. The stars shall fall. That could be comets. It could, of course, talk about the sun, moon, and stars of Israel. Also, I, in a symbolic sense, I don't doubt that. But I think that the literal uh, presence of some sign literally somewhere in heaven uh, will show that he is back. And that, as I say, uh, leads to the, the the credibility of false messiahs So yes, and here I am. And then all the tribes of the land or the earth shall mourn, and tribes is nearly always used about the tribes of Israel. And clearly what's in mind here is Zechariah 12, where all the tribes of Israel mourn when they see the crucified Christ. Revelation 1 verse 7 uses the same language, that they will mourn in repentance when they see Jesus. And yet too late. These people; these are the ones who didn't flee, who didn't go to the mound of olives and were not snatched away. In confirmation of that, to meet the Lord in the air, they shall see Him coming, but too late. Matthew 26:64. Jesus repeats this: "You who were crucifying Jesus, you shall see." Same word: the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He means, you will be resurrected and you will see this happening. You will then see me for who I am, but too late. And this is not the first time that he's used that idea. He says, Luke 13:35, You won't see me again until you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. They will recognize who he is, but too late. And this is the why there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth of anger with oneself, when they recognize that, when they recognize that he actually is Messiah. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Well, this is obviously quoting from Daniel 7, 14. And yet that is interpreted within Daniel 7 as meaning the Son of Man uh, and the saints. That's how it's referred to, that's how it's interpreted in Daniel seven. So then, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Yes, it's quoting from Daniel seven fourteen. But what is what does that mean? It's talking about when the saints shall come and take the kingdom. So this all fits in what I'm saying that uh, there's some sign, it's the abomination that makes desolate, whatever exactly that will be. There is then the uh, the. the the son, and son of Man in heaven, the trumpet blast according to First Thessalonians four, we shall know he's back. Go to meet him. Those who go immediately are confirmed in that desire by being snatched away in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is particularly relevant for those in the Jerusalem area when the city's fallen, two thirds have been killed. The minority, the remnant, start to repent. Those who uh, do repent and flee towards the Mount of Olives, are snatched away with us in, in the clouds, and we come, as it were, in the clouds of heaven with Jesus in judgment upon Israel who have not repented and upon uh, her enemies. they shall see the Son of Man coming with power and great glory. Now, it's absolutely laughable to try to apply this to AD 70. This is clearly... Yeah, Matthew 6, verse 13, the Lord's Prayer, this is clearly the coming of the kingdom of God. In the clouds, Acts one eleven, Jesus was taken up in clouds, and he shall return in like manner. So, we're sort of leaving it really at a bit of a cliffhanger, because now the Lord goes on to talk about the parable of the fig tree, which is about the repentance of Israel. We'll pick up with that, God willing, next week.